Hello, and welcome to the Sea Control Podcast. I'm Nathan Miller. In this episode, host Anna McNeil talks with David Reamer about his Anchorage Daily News article, Mutiny and Ice, the 1908 Journey of the SS Ohio from Seattle to Nome. Mr. Reamer is a historian who writes about the city of Anchorage, Alaska, and as you will hear, he is also a very talented storyteller. This episode was edited and produced by Anna McNeil. Simsec is looking for a volunteer to join our technical team in support web operations. We're looking for someone with a background in WordPress implementation and support, as well as knowledge in web hosting and networking. Some knowledge of identity management and security operations is also helpful. Please reach out to content at simsec.org to share your background and discuss. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters. Whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean, chances are there's a SIMSEC local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of our local chapters and contact information on our website at simsec.org. So if you're interested, please reach out. Finally, I want to take this opportunity to recommend our partners in the SIMSEC podcast network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drac, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Hey folks, thanks for tuning back in to Sea Control. Today we're talking with David Reamer about his recently published article, Mutiny and Ice, the 1908 Journey of the SS Ohio from Seattle to Nome, which was published online by the Anchorage Daily News in December of 2022. Mr. Reamer is a historian who writes about the city of Anchorage, Alaska. His peer-reviewed articles include topics such as housing discrimination, Alaska Jewish history, and the English gin craze. He's a University of Alaska at Anchorage graduate and loves helping people with history questions. He also posts daily Alaska history on Twitter at ANC Historian. We're grateful to have him here today to illuminate the relevance of this voyage in the context of yesterday and today. So welcome, David. Is there anything Thank else you. you would like to uh, tell our audience about yourself? My specialty as a historian, such as I have them, are community formation, urban development, um, non-Alaska Native minority history in Alaska, especially Black history in Alaska. But the newspaper articles, how you came across me is my outlet to stay away from being burned out, to chase down topics that I don't want to spend my life researching, but that I can have an enjoyable week or two research and writing on topics that would otherwise not get covered, uh, like raccoons in Alaska, like horn moguls visiting Anchorage, things like that. Well, thank you. And as a reminder to our listeners, all views expressed are our own, not necessarily representative of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. So, David, you've told me that you usually write about people. So what brought you to write about ships for this article and what did you find interesting? So I, I usually tend to describe myself as a you know, if you zoom out a bit as a social historian, I've never been too interested in my part into the audience. Um, in the minutia of something like ships, their engineering, I honestly would not be able to tell you anything of note in that regard. I would not even want to pretend. But then there's something about the Ohio's 1908 journey from Seattle to Nome that is just illuminating and just full of color in how it shows aspects of daily life in Alaska then of what the average day was like on a steamer, what the risks were like, what it cost people in time, their opportunity costs for being stuck on a steamer of indeterminate voyage length. 
that these sort of things are hard to tease out otherwise. And they often get sort of glossed over. Like, oh, a prospector went from Seattle to Nome, and they'll be focused on Nome, on the gold. <laughs> but the getting there is its own interesting story that tells a lot about the time. Absolutely. And I'll just share that when I read your article, uh, as someone who's served on board military ships, I found that the coverage you have, uh, and we'll get into this more later, of the decision making and the different pressures that were, were placed on the captain and the crew to decide whether to continue their voyage or to return is really fascinating. So help me set the scene here for those listeners who have never been to Alaska. What's the significance of uh, the port of Seattle at this point in time and the town of Nome? Um, in this day and age, Seattle was the outlet, outlet, the gateway to Alaska. Portland was also important, San Francisco, but Seattle was the place to be if you wanted to get out of the lower 48. Well, weren't the lower 48 yet, but uh, the contiguous U.S. to Alaska. Nome at this time was a gold rush town. Gold rush was discovered on Anvil Creek there in 1898. There was no settler town. There was a Nupiak village, but no town. By the next year, though, there was 10,000 people suddenly out of nowhere rushing for gold. Do you even find that there were prospectors who had found a reality in the Klondike that didn't match their dreams? Typical gold rush phenomenon. And that they then chased gold rush from place to place. And that people from the Klondike, having found failure there, then rushed over to Nome to get in on the new gold scene. Because surely that would be better. And if you get in there earlier then maybe you get a better and more profitable stake. You see this even after Nome. You see people rushing to Iditarod, to Fairbanks, chasing gold rushes, and then maybe giving up and finding work on the railroad. This is the type of Alaska, typical Alaska story in this time. By 1908, by the time of the Ohio's trip north, one of its trips north, the gold rush is really faded. Uh, Nome at its peak was around 12,000 people. By this time, it's getting down into... Four, three thousand. Even today, there's not four thousand people in Nome. It's just a fraction of its gold rush heyday. And it was still a thriving little town, but it had what is a defining characteristic of American Alaska and especially modern Alaska is tenuous logistics. Not a long shipping season, especially then with the sea ice. And it did not have a natural harbor, it does not have a natural harbor. They eventually built a port, but in those days, you had to anchor offshore, and barges or lighters would bring it in onto the very dangerous coast. There's almost no town in Alaska history that seemed more like Mother Nature was trying to wipe it off the face of the planet than Nome in the early 20th century. Fire after fire after fire after flood after flood after storm after storm. Horror stories of people watching the cemetery get washed out, the coffins floating away on fire. Everything would also catch fire because of, you know, the external fire sources. So it was a hard thing to beach at Nome. It was a hard thing to get stuff up there. There's instances of exasperated captains throwing their cargo overboard and telling the people in Nome to come get it. It was difficult. Uh, today, Nome is best known for it's the end of the Iditarod sled dog race, the, le the continuing legends of Balto and Togo and the 1925 serum run. That's what Nome's known for today. The current hope in Nome today is that they make lemonade out of global warming and that the declining sea ice makes Nome into a important, they're not in the Arctic, but gateway to the Arctic port, that they, as trade becomes more possible through the Bering Strait, through the Arctic Ocean, that Nome would become one of those important little transit waypoints and that then you would have to have a greater naval presence and just that Nome would become 
a boomtown again in this way. That's right. So when we think of Alaskan ports north of the Aleutians, there's there's not a lot of them, right? You've got maybe no. Dutch Harbor. What else? Um, so in a normal time like this, ship out of Seattle that was headed up to Nome, there weren't many places farther north you would have gone to. There, there were other places, but Nome was the big destination. Dutch Harbor in the Aleutian Islands was a natural waste point partway there. Would take you about five or six days out of Seattle to get there if you're heading there straight. Another three to four days to get up to Nome. St. Michael in between is on a small island on the west coast, and that was the gateway to the interior. Mm-hmm. Passengers and cargo would often get off uh, there and then get onto smaller boats that would take them up the Yukon River, um, into Fairbanks, or even, you know, following the path all the way into the Klondike. So how did you learn of the story of the SS Ohio? I was browsing for story ideas, and I came across a 1986 journal article that was nothing but just the letters of one of the passenger reprinted. And I thought, well, these are wonderful, but just add a little context to them about what was happening other than uh, two or three sentences about the ship made it there and what happened after. You know, in, in and of themselves, the letters were just this rare window into this day-to-day life, into these pressures they were feeling into the boredom of life on the sea. Just exasperating, excruciating boredom is one of the things that really comes out. Um, It was a young man named Max Loudon, and he was writing letters to his mother, and he just kept adding to it as the days went on on the ship and kept adding on and adding on. And he was hoping to get to know him. He was hoping to get there in time to make his own money, if not as a miner, then as labor, like, all the gold mining, they needed people up there, not just to mine, but to support the mines, to help construct sluices, to help build the town. Everything that was required when you're a sudden boom town, everything new has to be brought in, everything new has to be built. And he was hoping to make his fortune. And he wasn't the only one hoping to make his fortune on this trip, right? Oh, they all were. That's the that's the fun thing of, the fun and sad thing of like 1890s and 1900s Alaska is that Everyone thought they were going to make their fortune. <laughs> they all thought they were going to do it right. They were going to be the lucky ones. It doesn't matter if everyone doesn't get rich. They are. And they all thought, they all believed. I mean, the 1890s, this, this is coming out of a very severe depression in the rest of the country. So there are some real economic motivations going on, some very understandable ones. And get rich quick is alluring. It is seductive. They saw people. These weren't just myths. These were people, proven people coming back with loads and loads of gold. And they thought, why not them? Why not them quickly? And then you've got the captains who have secured themselves a pretty good job, including the captain of the SS Ohio at the time, which was Captain Conradi, right? Yes, Captain Conradi, a very anonymous person in a good way. Um, As a captain who worked the Northwest, who worked Alaska, these were dangerous lanes, rocks, not very well charted, and constantly discovering new rocks via the hard way. But he doesn't have a lot of historical record, which I read as a good sign. He wasn't coming up with Captain Conradi on board this ship, you know, hit rocks off of Dutch Harbor, he hit rocks off of Kodiak. No, this doesn't come up. There's no hint of like, Conradi's late, weeks late into town, except for this one time. Uh, There's no hint of his crews being especially drunken or outrageous in ports, being especially associated with 
smuggling, although every ship was involved in smuggling to some extent in Alaska in this time. And even the old timers who didn't have a personal stake in this journey, they actually spoke up for him. This is a well-respected man. This is a good old salt. We trust him. And he would become a scapegoat for this journey and lose his job. We would say he's fired now. They were more like your services are no longer needed. You don't have a ship to captain, so you can go do what you want. But otherwise, he was just this veteran old captain with nothing negative or special to his name, which the best sort of captain for these times. And tell us a bit about his ship, the SS Ohio. How did it compare to other ships of its time in terms of size, technology, amenities? Yes, as Alaska suddenly became important with the Klondike Gold Rush, it's the gateway into the Klondike, there was a huge rush in the number of ships that were needed. Not many ships were making an Alaska run in, say, 1894, 1895. 1897, with the Gold Rush fully on, everything needed to get pressed into service. You were getting rotting hulks that had been sitting on a beach turned into literal roadhouses, in the case of the Eliza Anderson. Barges that were old when the Russians owned Alaska, that were from that time being converted and dragged into service. Anything that could float and pull people north, such was demand, such was the money that could be made if you could get the people up there. Because they were willing to pay right now, money on the barrel, give them a ticket. I don't care about the cost, just get me to these magnificent gold fields. And the Ohio was far, far ahead of that typical rank. It was, I mean, it was an older, it was 36 years old as of 1908. It was an old iron ship, 343 long. It actually been built as a transoceanic liner working the Atlantic, far ahead of the normal ships of its day. But you mentioned the Eliza Anderson. What was that? The Eliza Anderson was literally a ship that had been good in its day, but it was primarily a coastal riverboat steamer. And in 1897, when the Klondike Gold Rush was fully on, it got pressed into service with about, oh, I don't know, a few days of refit. Um, it didn't have a compass. Its crew was apparently drunk from the day one. No way of getting fresh water. At best, it had, it seemed like the all they had done was give it a fresh coat of paint. It had literally been sitting on the side of a dock, turned into a roadhouse, out of the water, it had spent previous years just at the bottom of the, of the port, leaking immediately once it set out of port, and it didn't even make it as far as St. Michael. Eventually got abandoned on its way up there, on its very first voyage at Dutch Harbor. But th- that was the type of pressures that people were dealing with, that they were really to whistle. People could see it. All the old sailors in Seattle, where the Eliza left, they saw the ship. They knew its reputation. You could see it at a glance that this was not a good ship. This was not seaworthy. You didn't have to be a sailor. You could be from Kansas. And you could look at this and say, this doesn't look right. But they're like, okay, I'm buying a ticket. I will get to the gold fields. All will be good after that. I'll never have to journey this way again because I'll be rich. But these were the pressures of the day that something like that could go into service. And the SS Ohio itself, you mentioned in the article, had it in 1907 actually collided with ice. Is that right? Yes, this is the important sort of prelude to what happens in 1908 and kind of helps to understand the captain's motivations. He had this difficult calculus in mind. He needed to get to know him because that's what 
the cargo and the people on board and the people in Nome, they were all paid and expecting this in a very timely fashion. Getting there was important. This was wages lost, cargo that would have gone bad, did eventually go bad. Also time to get back to Seattle and get back up there again, parent company. But at the same time, the parent company didn't want to risk the ship. And in 1907, the Ohio did hit ice off of Alaska and got a hole in the bow and managed to, to survive, but put a scare into everyone. They were, you know, they were to the point of, you know, loading the lifeboats when they figured out they would be safe. It's actually the picture that they found to use for the article is that moment where you can see the people crowded on board, fearing the worst, thinking they're going to get, having to get into little boats in the Bering Sea. Yeah, there's but, not a high survivability there, for sure. No, so this apparently haunted. It's the same captain in 1907 and 1908. It's Captain Conradi. It apparently spooked the parent company as well, and they apparently gave him greater instructions that you do not do that again. We don't care what else. You don't hurt our ship. You, you don't hurt our income. And apparently took that to great heart and perhaps threw off the rest of his calculus that he needed to make. There was going to be risk no matter what. It was going to be a great amount of risk, no matter what, to make it up to Nome, to make it through the treacherous sea ice. You could not predict this. They had little to no idea of what would be what they would face even the next day. At best, maybe they would set into Dutch Harbor or St. Michael and hear from someone heading south, some forewarning of like. The ice is bad, but usually not much more than that because it would, of course, be moving. Yeah, your your account really highlights how far we've come in forecasting the ice edge. You know, I think NOAA does a, an exceptional job of it these days. You know, there's a number of efforts of aerial photography that help inform you know, modern commerce on the location density of the ice edge, but they had they had nothing but word of mouth. No, and and horror stories. <laughs> A history of horror stories, because shipwrecks were popular news, of course, big news in a territory so dependent upon everything coming through on the boats. Shipwrecks were inescapable news fodder. The idea of a shipwreck was, you know, banner headlines. So tell us about the actual journey of the SS Ohio and what wound up happening along the way. So in all of that setting, in the need to get people to know, in these, the previous 1907 incident with the ice with the Ohio. June 1st, 1908, the Ohio leaves Seattle bound for no. They expected it to be nine days. Ten days would have been a good time as well, but schedule call for nine. Conradi was the captain. This should have been routine. Everybody thought it would be routine. He, again, had no, neither he nor the ship had any reputation for any problems. And they hit the Unimac Pass in the Aleutian Islands. Passing near Dutch Harbor, everything seems fine. June 6th, they're on schedule. They're heading north along the western coast of Alaska, and they just hit sea ice. They're even close to Nome. They can see Nome. They see other ships. But the sea ice is there between them, so he backs off. And this is where he starts to differentiate himself from the other captains at the time, and very likely how he himself had acted in the past. He backs off further. The typical captain then would have hung out at near the end of the ice and just watched to see what happened. Would a crack appear? Would a revenue cutter, precursor to the Coast Guard, appear and like guide them through? You know, would they need to back off, but stay close enough so they could observe? He retreats many miles away. 
And it's important to note that this was a direct journey straight in Seattle to know. They had food for Seattle to know. There was nothing else on board other than the cargo sealed up. So as they're out there sitting there in the water, far away from the ice, they can't see the ice, the sea ice that's surrounding them, but he's safe here. They start running out of food. June 14th, 14 days, four days after they should have been in Nome at the least, they started running out of food. The meals started getting simpler. Things had to get shaved off, started running out of tobacco. And this is where the letters from Max Loudon really come into play because he emphasizes this as they just sit there waiting for things to change, for news of passing ships and revenue cutters cutting by to tell them, like, no, everything's clear. They did nothing. There was no entertainment. This wasn't a passenger liner in that sort of way. This wasn't a pleasure trip. There were no entertainments scheduled for the passenger's delight. There was no shuffleboard. There was no, you know, ship band to play every night. No dinners with the captain. This was put you in a box, get you from point A to point B. And they were going mad from boredom. They dig through everything they have. Someone finds out, I have some boxing gloves. So they just start hitting each other for several days. That, that, I mean, this, what else to do than have boxing matches? A couple people always on ship for this time. They always have musical instruments. You can see in pictures a boat tilted at some horrific angle in the Bering Sea, but a man on a banjo or a guitar uh, strumming away. Otherwise, to just sit there and stare at the water and think about the ice, think about what could happen to you as you're in the Bering Sea. Not That's not pleasure cruise territory anyway. You go mad unless you do something else. And so they're trying to play songs. They're trying to have boxing matches. They're trying to gamble on the boxing matches, but they've run out of money because they're going to the place where they would hope they could make money rather than having money on them. You know, Nome is where you would get money, but instead they're sitting on the boat losing out on wages, goods going bad. Revenue cutter comes up and says, we will guide you in. Conradi says, no, I don't trust this. This isn't safe. My priority is the ship. That sounds very, very good. Except he was being passed by other ships that did follow the revenue cutter into Nome, that accepted this risk. He, he was neither wrong nor right but he was definitely out of line with what his peers were doing. And thats it's difficult to judge him. He was doing what he was told, but also he was captain of a ship filled with people that he was costing their, their lives here. They were gonna, there was risk here of missing out on hiring surges, on just gold strikes in Nome, food going bad. These were wages lost, weeks of wages lost. June 18th, they were out of their regular meat stock. So they started breaking into the cargo, which was inevitable at this point. Loudon at this point wrote that he had been expecting to have a dollar a day job. So he had, you know, huge money in those days. And so he's missing out on more than a week of wages. It's hard to lose out on a week of your life this way. These people were desperate. And a week of wages, this, this is life-changing except that was just the beginning. They're just out there bobbing up and down in the Bering Sea. And they start to mock him. They took popular songs of the day and began giving it new lyrics, you know, because they had the couple of instruments that are always on one of these ships. And they started singing about him saying, no ice water will drink, says Khan, for its clink in the glass makes me just want to cry. Oh, 
If she touched no ice, I've a bonus. That's nice. To the flow melts, I'll hold the Ohio. He was going to get more money if he kept the boat safe. Another one said, I do not blame the Captain Bill. He's cautious, safe, and slow, and should have been in an old folks' home some 60 years ago. <laughs> he was 53 years old at this time. <laughs> the days kept going. They kept refusing to follow ships in. Other ships, they're seeing the ships pass them both ways. Finally, they had to head back. They go all the way back to Dutch Harbor to restock, get a little more coal. People on board were using what money they had left to barter at horrific trading post prices. You don't go into a trading post in a remote place like Dutch Harbor in 1908 without expecting to pay a magnificent surcharge. By this time, the postmaster had known every ship had to have the mail on board. He's complaining to the revenue cutters. He's telling them, seize this ship, make him come in. The passengers start getting a little antsy, and they start plotting. They start making plans. They're into July. It's been weeks now, weeks since they were supposed to arrive. They've spent over a month on board the Ohio, and they start thinking about how things would be different if they were in charge instead of the captain or the crew. There were formal petitions in the way of the time, very formal letters saying, Please just carry us through. But he was ignoring them. He didn't care for them. He openly despised the passengers. He wanted nothing to do with them. He insulted them at every turn. If there's anything negative that's written about him, it, be it from a biased source, this is it, that he didn't care what the passengers said. And again, to his mind, he was keeping them safe. Several days into July, they finally decide they're going to seize the boat if he doesn't accept the offer of the revenue cutters. There's now two of them on the scene to guide him into Nome, and he initially refuses. They're like, fine, hand over your mail, and we will make back-and-forth trips and get the passengers in the mail from your ship to Nome since you refuse to do your duty. And only then, realizing what a terrible risk he was running for the company, but, you know, legal danger he was putting them in, that he was definitely going to lose out on his bonus. Uh, he finally, with great reluctance, agrees to follow the men. But the, the passengers were ready, waiting, that if he had told them no, to burst in, and if necessary, under cover of guns, force the crew to sail into no. And finally, on July 11, 1908, 40 days after they left Seattle, 30 days overdue, there was a load of fruit on board. It had gone bad. Other cargo on board had been rifled through and stolen, just eaten in desperation. People had lost out on weeks of wages. Their entire year was thrown off. This was had long-term negative impact on people. You know, it's can't recover from that type of just gap in your income in this time. Ten days, yes. You take that gamble, you get to know them, you make your money in some gold fields. Great. Forty days later, you're, the summer is drifting away. You need to make some money before the winter comes. Your opportunities are dwindling. Things are darker. So is there any account from the captain's perspective that you found? No, other than complaining about the he, – he did state this both to them in person, that's reflected in the letters, and to the newspapers at the time about what a – blighted bunch these passengers were, annoyances, 
essentially talking noise for which they knew not, that they didn't understand what was actually at risk here, that they were at risk, and he was a very good man protecting them. Uh, Loudon wrote that he should have made $100 by this time at noon, by the time he actually got there. Uh, lawsuits were immediate. Several companies were suing them. They, the ship the ship was seized in Nome and then sent back to Seattle. The lawsuits continued, and the company just almost instantly gave up and sold the ship rather than have anything else to do with it again. It gets back into Seattle July 29th, 1908, after leaving on June 1st thrown off the entire schedule for the summer for the company, two months after departing. Only 19 passengers, there was still that hope and known that only 19 passengers actually came back, 10 tons of freight and nearly $30,000 in gold, and those in prices then, which shows that there was still value being extracted out of known. Otherwise, from Conradi, he did say that he was acting under the explicit orders of the company, which the company was... They demurred to back him up completely. He was relieved of his command, essentially fired, continued to sell the Pacific Northwest until he retired. Again, without any special note, either negative or positive, he was never put in a situation where he was required to be a hero. He never put his ships in a situation where he was required to be some sort of naval hero. So you mentioned one of the passengers' stories. Are there any other passengers' stories that really interested you and why? That was the only one that was illuminated in that personal way, where I know the name and I know his words. Otherwise, they are this, and as they were described in the contemporary papers, this mass of angry people, mass of angry noises yelling at them. Um, he's the one that comes out with some color. And even he, after having endured all that, found known very much not to his liking. Muddy, wet, dirty, um, very expensive to live in. And after a month or so of working there, he's already eager to leave. And his one thing keeping him there is he's very afraid that, you know, perhaps he wondered if no one had been honest with him and ship journeys like the Ohio in 1908 were more common. He's afraid that this is will happen to him again. There's no other way out of Alaska at that time, except overland. There's no roads to Nome. There's no railroad out of Nome. If he wants to get out of there, it's by boat or an extremely long dog sled journey, which the Iditarod Trail did open that year, but he was not a musher. So you know, you're stuck with these options. No matter what, you're going to have to risk with these ships. Do you know if he stayed in Nome or if he finally made it back to Seattle? He eventually left and moved back okay. to the you know lower 48. Yeah, there was no more Alaska for I mean, that's the typical at that time. That's that period of Alaska is just marked by massive out migration. People disenchanted. Um, at the best, people who'd made their fortune and moved on or disenchanted at the what gold was left, what opportunities were left after the the initial more you know, fortunate wave of prospectors and fortune hunters had have their way with the land. So since you've published this article, have you received any interesting or maybe unexpected feedback that you can tell us about? Um, the most often thing that comes up, um, I was having a conversation with someone just the other day, was the sort of constant nature of the logistic chains in Alaska, how tenuous they are, how fragile 
even now we're dealing with only one real major port, one port that wouldn't be destroyed by a, a big wave. That's Anchorage. Half of everything that comes into Alaska goes through the port at some point. If something happens there, and Anchorage is on a major spot of volcanic activity, the largest earthquake in North American history recorded was in Anchorage in 1964. If that happens, Alaska starves, apart from some massive humanitarian effort. And it's these sort of tenuous, you know, logistical ties that just pop up in every single decade of American Alaska. The fact that you, you know, if you're in the time of the Ohio, if you're in 1908, you're waiting for, in some of the smaller communities, you're waiting for your once or twice from the steamship to arrive to bring you supplies, hoping that the steamer, you know, that the winter didn't come too quick and you lost out. There are stories of towns in this time period who went without candles. Towns that went mad for when a ship finally appeared and, you know, they had to give up on any other industry in town because everyone just started drinking. Everyone just went mad because suddenly there was a release. Suddenly there was, you know, you could drink because someone had smuggled in, you know, cases of the good stuff or more often than not so good stuff, but effective <laughs> stuff. That's great. Uh, so that, that is the constant, the way that just carries over year after year and context after context from modern Anchorage to, you know, a gold rush gnome made in the way on the Bering Strait. So another part of the fun of being trapped in this boat for 40 days is no baths. <laughs> Even in, and this is interesting that this pops up, because that's the type of thing you don't always see in the historical record. No one went around saying, you know, Everybody's I left nice. my house today, mother, and went to the store, and I noticed how much everybody smelled. That just doesn't come up. That's those, those very hard to pull out historical details. It's fascinating detail and really telling, but you're going to struggle to build a narrative out. You're going to struggle to support what it was actually like. But he wrote about how all the men are getting very dirty now, and we will be lucky if sickness doesn't break out. He's a beautiful narrator in that sense. He was writing exactly what he saw and very unvarnished. Uh, he wrote that, I expect by this time people think we have sunk. And that is exactly what had happened. The newspapers literally were running headline banners. The Ohio is lost. We have not heard from it in weeks. We assume they're all dead. That happened. Huge impact on the families or anyone they've left behind that's relying on them. Thankfully, that news would have taken so long to get back to Seattle and back to families that hopefully the better news came along with or even quicker. Or even then, such news from like a town like 1908 Fairbanks or 1908 St. Michael, it had its own treacherous path of actually reaching um, a mother in Seattle or Kansas. Nome thought the steamer was lost. They went three weeks without any sight of it, without hearing from any ships that had seen it. Loudon wrote that every time Conradi saw a cake of ice, he turned and ran for open water. The passengers were the angriest lot of men you ever saw. Um, he was also angry, but he had this dis lovely dispassionate way of like describing them as both like him, but as something apart. Like he was like this amateur sociologist observing the people around him. It's fantastic work. Where, where do you find your source material actually at? Do you do this online or is there a local uh, historian's archive? Oh, all over the place. Um, I mean, my subjects bounce around so much that I'm using 
all types of things. Um, for something like this, I just got very lucky that there was a treasure trove like these letters. Typically do not get that. Something like, you know, 1900, 1908, Alaska, you're, maybe there's a diary that covers this period, maybe not, most likely not. Otherwise, you're dealing with frontier newspapers, which could get colorful and I mean, it wasn't just the frontier ones. You could see this in San Francisco and Seattle and Portland. Very sarcastic and very colorful newspapers. Otherwise, I'm dealing with, I've used everything from matchbooks. Phone books are a great resource for more modern research. Uh, finding out when something was actually in a place, like a business or when a person lived there, that's an, an amazing resource before people could start pulling out and being in phone books. Um, there are multiple archives in town, two major archives at the University of Alaska Anchorage and at the Anchorage Museum, major libraries, abusing every sort of digital resource I can, your typical historian in front of the microfilm and digging through uh, banker boxes type activities, uh, government reports, especially for Alaska as a, as a territory and from 1913 on and as a district before that. You know, under the Interior Department, a lot of your best materials are going to be government reports, of, you know, annual updates, things like that. In his last standoff with the Revenue Cutters before he finally gave in, he told the captains of the Revenue Cutters, Conradi, will the United States be responsible for my ship if lost? And they, of course, weren't going to say, like, yes, I, representative of the U.S. government, will vouchsafe you all the ship and all that cost. But it was only when he they forced his hand by threatening to take all of his cargo and all of his passengers and have them potentially yeah. strangled by his company out of legal rage. There's, there's, I, I just gotta think there's gotta be some, uh, some good correspondence, I would think, between the captain and the company. But I guess in those days you would sail under orders, and then that would be it, right? No other communication. Well, you're getting the early days of wire then, but yeah, but you were. Again, you're spending this time weeks out, no communication to anyone. No one knows. They assume the best, but in the same way, like I have also discovered, it's one of my favorite things is that people were also just as much now they did the 1900 version of doom scrolling. <laughs> the front page is dominated with negative news and you would often find more like varied news on the inside. Like that, that was typical. I, I've been actually working on a project like that on the side, trying to quantify that a little bit better, turn that qualitative into something a bit more precise. But they were all very, very quick to say, no, it's very likely lost. They're all dead. Also, all my cargo is gone. The world is terrible. So Ireland has fallen, things like that. Early trolling. <laughs> it, it, there is that in the newspapers. Just this, people wanted bad news. They wanted to consume negative news. And that is also seems to be a universal. So aside from that project, do you have any other current professional projects you'd like to tell us about coming up or uh, where the audience can find you on social media? Yes, I am very active on social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon, ANC underscore historian, Anchorage historian. I uh, just co-authored Black Lives in Alaska from University of Washington Press. That came out at the end of 2022. Uh, my current big project is I'm documenting explicit housing discrimination in deeds and plats in the city of Anchorage. Um, you know, discriminatory housing covenants. You know, you would have deeds and then just there'd be the addendum to the deeds. It would be like 
you're not allowed to turn this house into a club, into a nightclub. You're not allowed to allow black people to live here ever. You're not allowed to subdivide or just be mixed in like that. I'm trying to map the areas like that that would be um, would have been covered by these type of covenants. I also have my weekly articles in the Daily News, different topics on social media that give me a chance to dive into. I do heavy topics in those as well, but that allow me that chance to do happier and varied topics from, like everybody was recently delighted to learn that the guy who created the Bunts of Steel exercise program was from Anchorage, or he created it while in Anchorage, (laughs) things like that. Uh, I'm currently researching um, ice islands, the research stations that the you know the U.S. and Soviet Union had, and you know, especially in the 50s and 60s, That's really up amazing. in the Arctic Sea. Well, thank you, Dave Reamer, so much for joining us today and for telling us the story. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning back in to Sea Control. Thank you for having me. It was an honor. Wow.